Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Pellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, the botanical style aquarium challenges us. It forces us to look at things a bit differently, to accept a different look, a different function, and to embrace nature in a more intimate way in our aquariums than we typically do. And in order to make sense of it all, we spend a great deal of time examining the processes which occur when leaves and other botanicals are added to the aquarium. Part of our science. And this is important not only from an aesthetic standpoint, but from a functional and operational standpoint. It definitely differs from our hobby practice in decades past, where the idea of throwing in materials that affect the water quality or composition was strictly a practice reserved for specialty hobbyists like killifish breeders, dwarf cichlid keepers, etc., who wanted to create special conditions for the breeding of their fish. Nowadays, we're advocating the addition of such materials to our aquariums as a matter of course for the everyday purpose of replicating natural processes for our fishes. We understand, or are attempting to understand, the impact on both our aquarium's ecology and the husbandry involved. Yeah, sort of a different approach. We add a lot of biological material to our tanks in the form of leaves and botanicals, perfectly analogous to the process of allochthonous input, material uh, that is something imported into an ecosystem from outside of it exactly what happens in the tropical streams and rivers that some of us obsess over. There's been a fair amount of research and speculation by both scientists and hobbyists about the processes which occur when terrestrial materials like leaves and botanical items enter aquatic environments, and most of it's based on field observations. Now, as hobbyists, we actually have a unique opportunity to observe firsthand the impact and the effects of this material in our own aquariums. I love this aspect of our practice as it creates really interesting possibilities to embrace and create more naturally functioning systems while possibly even validating the field work done by scientists. And of course, there are a lot of interesting bits of information that we can interpret from nature when the planning, creating, and operating our systems. It goes without saying that there are implications for both the biology and chemistry of the aquatic habitats when, you know, leaves and other botanical materials enter them. Many of these things are things that we as hobbyists observe every day in our own aquariums. Example, well, here's something. A lab study that I came upon while searching about online, uh, I, in, when I was perusing it, I found out that when leaves are saturated in water, biofilm, our friend, is at its peak when other nutrients, i.e. nitrate, phosphate, etc., tested at their lowest limits. This is interesting to me because it seems that in our botanical-style blackwater aquariums, biofilms tend to occur much in a much greater um, uh, quantity early on when one would assume that these compounds are at their highest concentrations, right? And biofilms are essentially the byproduct of bacterial colonization, meaning that there must be a lot of food for the bacteria at some point if there's a lot of biofilm, right? <laughs> More questions. Does this imply that the biofilms arrive on the scene and peak out really quickly? Uh, sort of an indication that there's actually less nutrient in the water? Is nutrient bound up in the biofilms? And when our fishes and other animals consume them, does this provide a significant source of sustenance for them? Hmm. Oh, and here's another interesting observation. When leaves fall into streams, field studies have shown that their nitrogen content typically will increase 
Why is this important? Well, scientists see this as evidence of microbial colonization, which is correlated by a measured increase in oxygen consumption. Now, this is interesting to me because those really, really rare disasters that we hear about in our tanks um, would happen when people add like a really large quantity of leaves all at once. Like they take their entire Enigma pack and they add it to their five gallon aquarium, which results sometimes in the fishes gasping at the surface, which is a sign of what? Oxygen depletion. Kind of makes sense, right? I think so. There are interesting clues about the presence, uh, you know, the process of decomposition of leaves when they enter our aquatic ecosystems. These have implication for our use of botanicals and the way we manage our aquariums. I think that the simple fact that pH and oxygen tend to go down quickly when leaves are initially submerged in pure water during lab tests gives us some idea what to expect. A lot of the initial environmental changes will happen rather rapidly and then stabilize over time, which of course leads me to conclude that the development of sufficient populations of microorganisms to process the incoming botanical load is a critical part of the establishment of our biological, or excuse me, our botanical style aquariums. It makes sense. These are our friends in the fight. Fungal populations are equally important. In fact, they're as important in the process of breaking down leaves and botanical materials in the water as are the higher organisms like insects and crustaceans, which function as what scientists or ecologists call shredders. So the shredders, uh, animals which feed upon the materials that fall into the streams, process this stuff into what scientists call fine particulate organic matter. And that's where the fungi and the microorganisms make their you know, use of the leaves and other materials, processing them into fine sediments. Alochthonous material can also include dissolved organic matter carried into streams and redistributed by water current. And the process happens surprisingly quickly. In experiments carried out in tropical streams and tropical rainforests, actually in Venezuela, the decomposition, decomposition rates were really fast, like 50% of the leaf mass lost in less than 10 days after it hit the ground. But it is tremendously surprising to us, botanical-style aquarium people, that this happens, right? Not really. I mean, we see leaves begin to soften and break down in a matter of a couple of weeks, with complete breakdown happening typically in a month or so for most leaves. And biofilms, fungi, and algae are still found in our aquariums in significant quantities throughout the process. So what does all this mean? What, what are the implications for aquariums? Well, I think it means that we need to continue to foster the biological diversity of the animals in our aquariums, embracing life at all levels, from bacteria to fungi to crustaceans and worms, and ultimately our fishes, all forming the basis of a closed ecosystem and perhaps a food web of sorts for our little aquatic microcosms. It's a very interesting concept, a fascinating field for research for aquarists, and we all have that opportunity to participate in this on a most intimate level by simply observing what's happening in our botanical-style aquariums every day. Diversity is interesting enough, but when you factor in things like seasonal changes and cycles, it becomes an almost foundational component for what I think is a new way of running our botanical-style aquariums. Consider this. The wet season in the Amazon, uh, it runs from November to June, and it rains almost every day. And what's really interesting about that is that the surrounding Amazon rainforest is estimated by some scientists to create as much as 50% of its own precipitation. I think that's kind of cool. It does this via humidity present in the forest itself from the water vapor present on plant leaves, which contributes to the formation of rain clouds. Yeah, trees in the Amazon release enough moisture through photosynthesis to create low-level clouds and literally generate rain, according to a recent study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the United States. That's crazy, but it makes a lot of sense, right? Okay, Scott, that's, you know, 
a cool cocktail party, you know, party sound bite and all that. But what happens to the aquatic environment in which our fishes live when it rains? Well, for one thing, rain performs the dual function of diluting organics while transporting more nutrient and materials across the ecosystem. What happens in many of the regions of Amazonia, and likewise in many tropical locales worldwide, is the evolution of our most compelling environmental niches. The water levels in the rivers, they rise significantly. And once the dry forest floors fill with water from torrential rain and overflowing rivers and streams, you know what happens. In Amazonia, it means one thing. The agapos are formed. All of the botanical material, fallen leaves, branches, seed pods, and such, is suddenly submerged. And of course, currents redistribute this material into little pockets and stands, affecting the now underwater topography of the, of the landscape. Leaves begin to accumulate. Tree branches tumble along the substrate. Soils dissolve their chemical constituents, tannins and humic acids, you know, into the water, enriching it. Fungi and microorganisms begin to multiply, feed, and break down the materials. Biofilms form. Crustaceans reproduce rapidly. Fishes are able to find new food sources, new hiding places, and new areas to spawn. Life flourishes. So yeah, the rains have a huge impact on tropical aquatic ecosystems. And it's important to think of the relationship between the terrestrial habitat and the aquatic one when visualizing the possibilities of replicating nature in your aquarium in this context. This is huge. It's a huge, important idea. It's important stuff that any real natural aquascaping enthusiast needs to get his head around. It's an intimate, interrelated, and perhaps even codependent sort of arrangement. And of course, I think we can work with this stuff to our fish's advantage. We've talked about the idea of flooding a vivarium-type setup designed to replicate an Amazonian forest before, you know, sort of attempting to simulate the processes which happen seasonally in nature. With technology, materials, and information available to us today, the capability of creating a true year-round habitat simulation in the confines of an aquarium or vivarium has never been more attainable. The time to play with this concept is now. We've talked about this before. I'm going to keep bringing it up. Sure, you need to create a technical means or a set of procedures to gradually flood your rainforest floor in your tank, which can be accomplished manually by simply pouring water into the display over a series of days or automatically with solenoids controlling valves from a reservoir beneath the setup or perhaps employing the rain heads that frog and hurt people using their systems. This is all very achievable, even for hobbyists like me with limited DIY skills. The information's out there. You just have to innovate and be willing to do a little work and experimentation. And... You have to accept some new and very different aesthetics. You have to understand that when you flood a soil or clay sediment-based substrate with water, it's going to be turbid. It's not going to be crystal clear and, you know, aquarium culture perfect in appearance. When you make these mental shifts, you can just ponder the possibilities here. It's crazy. As a display floods, these materials in the formerly terrestrial environment become submerged, just like in nature, releasing nutrients, humic substances, and tannins, creating a, a rich, dynamic habitat for fishes, offering many of the same benefits as you'd expect from the wild environment. So recreating a 365-day dynamic environment in the aquatic feature would perhaps be the ultimate expression of an operational biotope-inspired system, truly mimicking the composition, the aesthetics, and the function of the natural habitat, a truly realistic representation of the wild on a level previously not possible. No more of that diorama bullshit. This is the real deal stuff. Of course, I have no illusions about this being a rather labor-intensive process. It's fraught with a few technical challenges and mental shifts, but it's not necessarily complicated to make it, you know, to do. You'll have to be patient. You'll have to make smaller, slower, incremental moves. I mean, you're starting out with a dry aquarium, a representation of a forest floor or a grassland, letting it thrive and then slowly flooding it. 
It does require some active management, some planning, and some diligence, but on the surface, executing is no more difficult than with some of the other aquatic systems we dabble with, right? The transformation of dry forest floors into aquatic habitats provides a tremendous amount of inspiration and biological diversity and activity for both the natural environment and for our aquariums. As always, it's best to look to nature for your inspiration. You simply won't find much in the way of aquariums created to replicate these habitats and processes just yet. And man, nature provides some really incredible inspiration for this stuff, doesn't it? Flood pulses in these habitats easily enable the large-scale transfers of nutrients and food items between the terrestrial and aquatic environments, something we talked about already. This is of huge importance to the ecosystem. As we've touched on before, aquatic food webs in the Amazon area and in other tropical ecosystems are very strongly influenced by the inputs of terrestrial materials. And this is a really important point for those of us interested in creating more natural aquatic displays and microcosms for the fishes that we want to keep. Caracens, catfishes, dwarf cichlids, annual killifishes, they all have unique relationships with these habitats, which we can replicate, we can study, and we can interpret. They respond to the seasonal changes almost predictably. And the seasonality in these wild aquatic habitats is perhaps one of, you know, the one feature that we as aquarists have yet to really fully embrace and study. It's fascinating, it's intriguing, and it's dramatic in most cases. What can we learn from these seasonal inundations? Well, for one thing, we can observe the diets of our fishes. In general, fishes, you know, fish, detritus, and insects form the most important food resources supporting the fish communities in both wet and dry seasons. But the proportions of invertebrates, fruits, and fishes are reduced during the low water season. Individual fish species exhibit diet changes between high water and low water seasons in these areas. And an interesting adaptation is possibly something we could adapt as aquarists, right? Well, think about this. The results from one study of gut content analyses from uh, some herbivorous fishes in the Amazon in both the wet and dry seasons found out this. The consumption of fruits in Mylosoma and Colossoma species was significantly less during the low water mark. And their diet was changed with these materials substituted by plants and invertebrates, which were more abundant. Fruit eating is significantly reduced during the low water period when the fruit sources in the forest are not readily accessible to the fish. During these periods of time, the fruit eating fishes, also known as frugivores, consume more seeds than fruits and supplement their diets with foods like leaves, detritus, and plankton. Interestingly, even though uh, fishes like grazers, like, like leporinus, they were found to consume a greater proportion of the materials like seeds during the low water season. Fishes adapt. Mud and algal growth on plants, rocks, submerged trees, etc. It's, it's quite abundant in these waters at various times of the year. Mud and detritus are transported via those overflowing rivers into the flooded areas, and they contribute to the forest leaf litter and other botanical materials, coming, you know, becoming nutrient sources which contribute to the growth of epiphytic algae in these aquatic systems. During the low water periods, this organic layer helps compensate for the shortage of other food sources. When the water is at a high period and the forests are inundated, many terrestrial insects fall into the water and they're consumed by fishes. In general, insects, both terrestrial and aquatic, support a large community of fishes. So it goes without saying that the importance of insects and fruits, which are essentially derived from the flooded forests, are reduced during the dry season when the fishes are confined to open water and feed on different materials. Makes sense. So I wonder though, is part of the key to successfully conditioning and breeding some of these fishes found in the habitats, uh, altering their diets to mimic the seasonal importance or scarcity of various menu items? In other words, feeding more insects at one time of the year and perhaps allowing fishes to graze on detritus and bio cover, you know, at another time of the year, uh, you know, does that stimulate something in their, in their physiology? 
is the concept of creating seasonally influenced food producing aquariums complete with detritus, natural mud, and an abundance of decomposing you know, botanical materials a way to create more truly realistic feeding dynamics as well as an aesthetically functional aquarium? I'm fairly certain that this idea will make me even less popular with the so-called nature aquarium crowd, which in my opinion has a sort of appropriated the descriptor while really embracing only one aspect of it, i.e. plants. Hey, I love the look of those tanks as much as anybody, let's face it, but a truly natural aquarium needs to embrace stuff like detritus, mud, decomposing botanical materials, varying water, tint, and all that stuff. Stuff that would not be, you know, well-received in that world. But if you're intrigued by that stuff, and you're not frightened of the looks and the operational considerations I discussed, you'll love some of the new things we're coming out with. You're going to love the nature-based Igapo substrate, for example. After about a year or so of testing, it's now weeks away from release. It'll challenge you. It'll create, before mentioned, turbidity. It'll color the water. It'll grow terrestrial grasses. It might even grow some aquatic plants. It'll foster biofilm formation. It'll get your creative juices flowing. And we think it will reinforce the idea of what we mean by functional aesthetics. The aesthetics might not be everyone's cup of tea, but the possibility for creating more self-sustaining, ecologically sound microcosms are numerous, and the potential benefits for the fishes are so many. Creating aquariums based on specific natural functions and benefits is something that I just can't resist. And since a few of you asked, that is where Tenon is headed in the second half of 2020 and into next year. A new approach, a different look. Products that might have you scratching your head in sheer terror and perhaps jumping for delight. We're going to do a lot more pushing out into the margins of what is considered normal in the hobby. And that's just where we like to be. So for you, I say stay excited, stay focused, stay inspired, stay creative, stay tuned, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott from Tenon Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tenon.